0: Think about the concept of rare. It's often synonymous with unique, valuable, precious. But what about in the context of disease? Rare diseases are defined as having an extremely low prevalence, yet an estimated 30 million Americans have one. That's one in 10 people. Listen as we uncover some of the inspiring stories of lives touched by rare disease and see how, in the end, We all have rare in common.
1: I'm your host, Andra Stratton,
0: and I have a rare disease.
1: Since my diagnosis with partial lipodystrophy at age 37, I've become a voice for my community, first through the creation of the Patient Foundation Lipodystrophy United, and now through public outreach and national awareness campaigns. Today we're talking to Susan Faitos, the Executive Director of the XLH Network. Susan, I'm so glad you were able to make it in. You must be very busy with XLH Awareness. Tell me what's going on.
2: Oh my gosh, it's been such a busy, but such a fun month. Um, June is, all of June is XLH Awareness Month and the 23rd is XLH Awareness Day. And we chose that because the hormone responsible for some of the manifestation of XLH is FGF23. So that's why we chose the 23rd for ah,
1: very clever. our date. Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
2: We just had so much fun um, with rolling out different initiatives. Um, we have, a par- we had a party on that actual night, a zoom party for all of our members that wanted to come and we played games and chatted and it was just short and sweet, but it was nice to be able to celebrate XLH day. You know, it was funny last year was the first year we did XLH day and it was like, oh, my gosh, I have a day. Yeah. <laughs> it was really fun, but it was a little kind of strange. But it was like, this is my day. This is so cool. What's been really fun is we've had people from literally all over the world submitting pictures that we're posting on our Facebook page to be an XLH Awareness Ambassador. So we just had a guy from Russia. We have someone from Brazil. Um, we have little kids and adults submitting pictures and really wanting to say, Hey, this is me. This is Xlh Awareness. This is what it looks like. And that's been really exciting to watch. They feel
1: so comfortable about submitting those pictures. Yeah, it's lovely to see that kind of community building right in front of your eyes. Yeah, it really is. It really is. So XLH, I so appreciate uh, the short acronym. What does it stand for?
2: It stands for X-linked hypophosphatemia. Basically, what happens is because of this hormone in our bodies, our body does not um, retain phosphorus. It gets lost in the urine. So the resulting manifestation is very similar to rickets. Some of those are spontaneous cases. They just happen to be that way. Other cases are inherited. Somebody asked me earlier, but the percentage of the breakdown was of each. And I couldn't tell you, honestly, I, didn't, I don't have that off the top of my head. But it is genetically inherited in many families. And then every now and then you get a spontaneous case. I'm a spontaneous case. And I think it's probably, if I'm going to guess at the numbers, I'm going to say it's about a third spontaneous to two-thirds genetic.
1: So Susan, in addition to rickets and maybe uh, not de- not developing or walking as quickly or as normally as one would expect, how does how does it really show up? How does XLH show up in a young child?
2: When children start walking their legs are bowed and then they don't straight straighten up like normal I hate to say that word normal but children without xLh so what happens because of the bowed legs there's also a waddling gait and their short stature a lot of stiffness and a lot of pain pain level you know varies per person but those are like probably the four main things the the short stature the waddling gait and the, the either bowed legs or not need depending on the manifestation of it
1: and does it always start in childhood?
2: Or yes, in infancy? Yeah, you're, you're born with isolates, you don't acquire
1: it. And beyond that, I mean, young children don't necessarily have all the verbal skills to explain how they're feeling, right? I mean, the pain must be really challenging. You know, that's a really good point. That's
2: tough because it's hard to explain the pain. And, and that's been an issue for many patients. In our circle, we call it bone pain. But yes. when you go to your doctor and they try to ask you where it hurts and or if it's a sharp pain or a dull pain, it doesn't really fit into any of those kind of categories. So sometimes the pain issue for a lot of people has been difficult to them to explain to their physicians that there is pain and it does need to be treated.
1: I've heard from people in my community um, and other communities that when you have bone pain, you know it's bone pain. But it's very difficult to explain. Right. Yeah, it is really difficult to
2: explain. It's internal, it aches. It's it's different. It's not like you cut your hand, you know?
1: Are doctors starting to recognize this term, bone pain?
2: Um, I think doctors that are familiar with, with it are. They understand it, they understand bone pain. I think there's a learning curve for doctors that are just meeting a patient with XLH. And
1: then um as the child grows are there other uh, medical complexities that occur
2: so when children grow up they have the you know the knock knees or the bowed legs and the waddling gait the short stature um those are pretty much the complications that stay with them through life but doesn't really change um unless with treatment the legs get straighter uh, because they're having more phosphate in their system um I would say the thing that changes as people get older the most is the onset of hearing loss. Most of the children don't have the hearing loss that comes with XLH, but many of the adults do.
1: How are you diagnosed?
2: Basically, at this point, we're diagnosed by the symptoms. We're diagnosed by the bowed legs in infancy that don't straighten out when children start to walk and the growth issues. When the person first gets to the medical community and they start running tests, they'll see that their phosphorus level is very low. There's other blood tests that correlate with that. There isn't actually, well, there is now, but for many years, there wasn't actually a test for XLH. Now they can do a genetic test for it. It's pretty new. So it's mainly up until recently been just a combination of symptoms and blood work.
1: So because it shows up like rickets, is it accurately diagnosed or is it often missed? It's actually pretty accurately
2: diagnosed by. People that are familiar with the diagnosis, and that's one of the challenges we have at the network is educating physicians. It's more commonly known now than it used to be, obviously, and with the advent of the internet and other things, people are, are more aware of it, but it is still challenging to get diagnosed if you're in sort of a part of the country that doesn't have a lot of access to super specialists or large hospitals, large university hospitals.
1: How about
2: um, treatment options? In 2018, the FDA approved a treatment called borosamab. What that does is it allows our body to retain the phosphorus. It slows down the production of FGF-23 that I was talking about, and then the body actually does retain phosphorus. It's been really exciting to watch, especially in children, because we see these children pictures of severely bowed legs, and then after they've been on treatment for 18 months, two years. They're late starting to straighten out. So it's been really exciting to watch. The treatment is available for adults as well. And many people have reported that they're have more energy. They're not in as much pain. They're not as stiff. That's
1: been really nice. That's fantastic. Yeah. That's really exciting. So I have a friend, a very close friend of mine uh, with uh, Jansen's disease. And it's also a bone disease that's often um, misdiagnosis rickets they have to do a lot of surgeries does your community with xlh have a lot of surgeries involved uh, prior to treatment yes we
2: do um the surgeries involve straightening the legs usually around in the early teens so when the growth plates start to close then that's when they start looking at surgeries and treatment and stuff like that so many of us older xlhers I've had a multitude of surgeries on our legs, just straightening and trying to get a normal gait going if possible. I don't know, but the future holds in terms of surgeries for the treatment because it's so new to us.
1: That's pretty exciting, though, to think about the young ones coming behind you, right, to have an easier path than you have. It is
2: really exciting. I have to admit, every time I see those pictures, I burst into shears There's these kids that just have these bow legs and they're just, you know, straight now and they're running around having a great time. I want to be clear when I say that, that it's not, everybody's having that experience. So I don't want to, you know, if there's a new mom listening to this, I don't want her to think that that's for sure going to happen for her daughter or her son, but we are seeing a lot of great
1: results. Yeah. Well, that's the thing, right? With each disease, there's a spectrum of disease and with each treatment, there's a spectrum of response to treatment, which is one reason we never stop fighting for more treatments, right? Right. Exactly. So you say you burst into tears thinking of, or watching these success stories. Uh, Do you mind telling us a little about your journey? Sure, not
2: at all. So I was diagnosed when I was 18 months old because my legs never straightened out when I started walking. So my parents got a little worried about that. And at the time it was called vitamin D resistant rickets. And they didn't really know a whole lot about it. Now you have to keep in mind, I'm 60 years old. So this is... uh, 57 years ago, 58 years ago. Um, so uh they would put on a treatment of a certain kind of vitamin D to see if things would get better. And they, you know, for the most part, it was fine until I was 14 and I had my first surgery to straighten out my legs. I came out back to my surgeon six weeks later to get my cast off and all excited. And they're like, Well, your bones still look like they did when you got out of surgery, nothing's healed. They realized then, and this was a renowned university hospital in the area. They realized then that vitamin D wasn't enough, that they had to put me on a combination of phosphorus and a special kind of vitamin D in order to make my bones actually do what they were supposed to do. So six months later, I finally got out of the chaos. You know, it's funny. I had one more surgery after that to repair part of the, on my left leg that didn't quite straighten out, right? When I was 21, this has been happening to a lot of young adults, is once you're done with your surgeries and once your growth spades close, they used to think it was a childhood only disease. So for me, what they said was, well, okay, you're done. Have a nice life. Yeah. Then I'm like, okay, well, I guess I don't have anything more to do with XLH. Um, And it wasn't until I was about 40, I think, late 30s, early 40s that I started having problems again, and I would try to find a doctor that was familiar with it. And um, at the time, again, they didn't know much about it. They weren't really sure. It was like, well, you could take this phosphorus and vitamin D, and hopefully you'll feel better. And, And I did. I did feel better. I have to say, when I finally got involved with the network and learned a little bit more about this, and then went to a specialist... I felt like I was re-diagnosed with XLH, that finally people knew what it was about, knew how to treat it. I was 53 before I met a doctor that actually knew what XLH was when I walked in the door.
1: Wow. Yeah,
2: and that was like, I, I wanted to hug him. <laughs> I was like, really, you know about this? I'm so excited.
1: How validating was that for you?
2: Yeah, it really was. It was a, a, kind of a life-changing experience in a way. Um, and it was the same year that year that I finally got up enough guts to go to a network event. I had been hearing about the XLH network and I had, you know, got on the computer and looked and kind of backed off and looked and kind of backed off. I was super shy about it. And finally, when they had one in the Bay Area, I was like, well, I don't have an excuse. I've got to go and see what this is all about. I remember walking in just terrified. I had never met another person with XLH. And I walk in this room and there's all these people that, Look like me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's yes. just like so emotional and so validating at the same time. Yeah. And so scary, too, kind of in a way, you know? I really see that as like yeah, but that day, that moment, is kind of a pivotal change in my life that and finding the doctor that knew SLH. Well,
1: uh, I have goosebumps. And part of the reason is, is that with lipodystrophy, my rare disease, there is a visual component. And my first event that I went to, I remember sitting in the hotel lobby on the phone with someone and saying, oh, there's someone with lipodystrophy. I can see it. I've got to hang up. Oh my God. Like It was to see someone that looks like you. It, you never forget that moment,
2: right? Right, exactly, exactly. You never do. It's just, I remember standing outside the door shaking. I was so scared to go in. And then when I went in, it was like, oh my God,
1: their feet don't touch the floor either. <laughs> <laughs> can you imagine? I mean, so having a rare disease is is really challenging. But can you imagine how much you would have missed out not having that experience of going to that networking event?
2: yeah, I now I really get it. now I wish I had done it earlier, but you know things happen as they happen for a reason. I can't look back on that, but
1: uh, really was such a huge thing, huge change for me in my life and so, how have you been involved with this network since then? Oh, after that,
2: after my my big breakthrough, <laughs> I started volunteering. Um, where I could a little bit here and there, and I went to another network event the following year, and I volunteered there. Then I was asked to be a member of the board of directors, which was really exciting. And that first year, um, we put on a patient-focused drug development symposium in Baltimore. And oh, you jumped right in then. That's awesome. Yeah, jumped right. It was really like, hi, you're a board member. Hi, would you like to run the PFTD? <laughs> like, sure, why not? So that was a really exciting event. I have to say that was at that point, you know, I've been in social work and mental health for 30 years. That's my background. And I have to say that day, that day we did the symposium was one of the absolute highlights of my career because I could really see what a difference it was making in the people that attended and how excited they were to be able to talk about it and have everything out in the open. So that was really exciting. And then I had the opportunity, uh, I think it was this last September now, our executive director at the time had to step down and um, I was offered the position. And I have to say, given that I had kind of retired and but I was still had kind of my foot in this and I still really wasn't sure kind of what I wanted to do, but with everything I've done in my career and having this opportunity, which brings my personal situation and my experience together has been just yes. like, the perfect way for the last fourth of my career in my life, whatever it's going to be, it's just been like, right. everything to came together. I'm right in the exact place I need to be at the right time. And it's really fun.
1: I love that. I love that story so much. It brings me Thank so you. much joy uh, because I, I, I feel it as well. When you spend a lot of years, not understanding your body in the way that you do now, And that's frustrating, but that experience gives you so much depth to bring to the table Mm -hmm. along with your other professional experience, right? Exactly, exactly. So what are you up to now? Now that you're the executive director, you've gone through this big meeting, which is a huge (laughs) one. And it sounds like you all have a fairly successful treatment. Mm-hmm. What's, what do you have going on right now and what's next?
2: Well, you know, Andrew, if you would ask me that six months ago, I've had a different, completely different story to tell you about what's next. Um, but as with everybody else, this year is turning out yeah. incredibly different. So what we're doing right now was we're kind of reinventing the wheel. On the 23rd, we rolled out several of our new initiatives. Um, one was a challenge we're doing this summer the momentum behind it is to get people up and moving to the extent that they can. So it's like a fundraiser race, but you can read a book, you can take a yoga class, you can do whatever works for you in your body and wherever you wanna do and still earn points for that. And the points will go to how the donors contribute to the fund,
1: that makes sense. It does, and I love that because it doesn't have to be a race, right? I mean, we see the bike rides, we see the races, yeah. and those are fantastic, but they're not for everybody. Right,
2: exactly. Actually, it doesn't have to be anything like that. And the other thing we're doing is we're um, trying to get people to work in teams so that they can connect with each other and, and communicate and um, you know meet other people in their area if they want to um, that also have XLH. The other thing we started on the 23rd was uh, XLH yoga class online um, they Our members have been asking for that forever, and we absolutely actually have an XLH member who is also a yoga teacher so yes. that worked out really well. and will that be ongoing? Uh, we're going to start for six weeks and then see how it goes, but hopefully it'll be ongoing. Um, it's got a lot of positive feedback so far, so people are excited about it.
1: So did you change plans or were these always in the works because these two things seem like they fit very well with our current shelter-in-place that's happening still in a lot of states.
2: These are new. We we revise them for the current shelter-in-place stuff. Normally, we have an annual XLH day conference. That's like a a one-and-a-half-day conference that everybody comes together, and we have speakers and socialization and networking activities, and that was planned for Phoenix in October, but We had to cancel that for obvious reasons. So this is what we're doing instead. We are still going to have the event in October, but it's going to be a virtual event.
1: I mean, there's not a lot of great things about COVID. There isn't. But uh, I think this expansion of virtual and making these events um, more accessible to people who don't normally travel, that is a plus. Uh, Are you able to bring in your international community as well?
2: Yeah, as a matter of fact, um, we are able to bring them the international community as well. And we recently had a meet and greet on a, on Zoom back in April. And we had a couple of attendees from, I think there was one from Argentina and one from Chile. Um, so that is nice to be able to bring people. We do a weekly coffee chat. And we're also finding that we get people that we've never met that haven't been able to come to our events or anything like that. And they're very excited. They don't know anybody so that's been a plus side to this. You know, there's not very many yeah. plus sides to this, but that's been one of them.
1: I agree with you. I've seen that in a lot of communities. When you're talking with these folks who are brand new, do you have any guidance for them on how to enter this world um, and, and introduce themselves to other folks who look like them, who have the same experiences?
2: We do. We have a members group on Facebook, a private members group. So we encourage people to, since we're not having the live events, encourage people to go there and meet other people. We encourage them to come to any of our social events that we have periodically online. We're just started rolling out welcome kits for our new members. So once they sign up, they'll get a a package that has a lot of good information about the network and where they can go for resources but it's something I think about all the time is how to engage people when we don't get to actually meet them. So yeah. we've tried out a couple of different things. Some have been more successful than others, uh, but it's, you know, it's a work in progress.
1: It is a work in progress. And, you know, I do think we'll look back and, and keep some of the things we're learning right now during COVID. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. there are always going to be folks that don't travel There's always going to be folks who are maybe too scared to travel at first, but then when they create the connection online in a coffee chat, they may then feel more confident um, when we do get to meet together. Absolutely. Um, I, I found myself thinking many times, why have we not always done this? You know, like with the coffee chats yeah, or maybe, you yeah. know, like, of course, we've always been able to do this. Why didn't we do this? Right.
2: Exactly. Know. Exactly. I know if for my personal situation, I would have gotten connected a whole lot earlier if there were things like Zoom available um, that I could connect with people or if there was a Facebook group or something like that. There was a forum. So part of that was just me, but Um, I definitely would have not waited until I was 55 if we had these kind of opportunities that we have now.
1: Yeah, I've heard from you already in this conversation that your goal is to meet people where they are, right? When they're ready and saying, what can you do to get up? And is it reading a book or is it going for a walk? What, where are you at? And we'll meet you there. Mm -hmm. I think that technology has really allowed us as leaders in our communities to add to our toolbox.
2: Absolutely, there. you know, I'm learning so much of this process. And like you said earlier, some of this will continue when the pandemic goes away, we're not gonna stop having video chats. I think it's just been a really effective way of keeping people engaged. You know, the XLH Day activity is once a year, this can happen every month.
1: Yeah. It makes
2: a huge difference.
1: So moving forward, I'm assuming eventually we all leave our homes again. (laughs) What are your goals with the XLH network? Uh, Before this happened,
2: one of our goals this year was going to be to create regional chapters so that people could do more than just the one XLH day a year, that they could be in the Northwest or the South or the Midwest or wherever and have their own connected community that was still a part of the network, but more centrally located for them so the travel wouldn't be so burdensome they'd have support around them we were going to do that by holding activities in each of these areas so we did a little bit of that last year but that was the plan this year was to get that going a little bit farther so that's had to take a step backwards obviously but that's one of our goals once we as you said we can leave our houses again um (laughs) hopefully um Another couple of things we have going on this year is uh, we do have a children's book in the works. Um, I can't say a whole lot about that just yet, but. um, That's exciting. Yeah, it'll be fun. It'll be a first for the community. And I think it'll be a great way to help children get more familiar with their condition and also feel a little bit better about it. We have a research project, uh, and it's another one I can't say a whole lot about yet, but just looking at family dynamics and outcomes and sort of the mental health, social side of living with a rare disease, and in particular with XLH. There's so much focus on the medical, and with my background in mental health and social work, I want to focus a little bit on the other piece of it as well, and see what we can come up with that would help uh, treatment team members better serve and better relate to the patients
1: yes that i'm so excited to hear that because rare disease is often most often if not always a full body disease right. right yeah i mean it's not just your
2: bones it's a our not our tagline but one of the things that we keep trying to remind people is the whole body whole life disease so oh. it doesn't go away when your growth plates close and it's just not about your bones. Um, hearing loss is a uh, significant part of XLH in older adults. Um, you know, the osteoarthritis and things that come along later on in life are, are significant as well. So it's, it is a whole body, whole life disorder.
1: And a lot of challenges for whole families. Yeah. Right? Challenges are going to be different if you're
2: come from a family where you've inherited it and you see your uncles and aunts and cousins all with the same thing, or if you're a spontaneous case and you're the only one in the family that has it. It's very different dynamics. And I just think it's it's interesting to see how that plays out in not only manifestation of the disease, but manifestation of your social situation and your family outcomes, family dynamics, that kind of thing.
1: So I really am so impressed with you, Susan. And I, I have to say, I don't often say things happen for a reason, but think of your background, your experience, where you are now, when you came into the network, you're in a position to change lives now. And your experience and understanding the mental health aspect of disease is something I think is really missing in a lot of areas of rare disease. Well, thank you. I appreciate that.
2: Um, And I'm actually hoping to, if we do this research project, hoping to bring more rare disease organizations in with us, people that might have the same kind of dynamic in their situation, you know. So yes. It's really exciting. There isn't, hasn't been a whole lot done on that kind of stuff yet that I, we've
1: been able to find. No, it's one of those things we talk about that's missing. We say it's important, but it just becomes one of those initiatives that doesn't get nearly as much attention as it yeah, should. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. Understandably, people are, are
2: at first concerned with the physical manifestation and treatment and feeling better. And then there's this whole other part, especially with XLH families, we're shorter. We walk a little bit differently. Sometimes we don't hear. there's a whole psychosocial side to that, that I believe people can use a lot of support with.
1: Well, Susan, it's just been such a pleasure to learn about you, your experience, the work the network is doing, your awareness day, even through the challenges of covid um, thank you so much for spending some time with us. I'm going to be following up. I want to hear how those yoga classes go.
2: Thank you so much, Andrea. It's been really a pleasure talking about it. And I I know as I the more I talk, the more energized I get, the more excited I get about what we're doing. So it's a good experience for me as well. I did want to mention one more thing because it's kind of a fun part of XLH Awareness Day. Um, one of our board members wrote a fight song for XLH. Uh, he's, a, he's a professional musician and he has a band of his own. And him and his wife wrote a positive XLH Byte song. And so, what we've been doing is collecting video clips from our members. And on the Awareness Day, hopefully, if we get enough clips, we're going to have a video montage of all of our members singing this XLH Byte song. So, it's just been such a fun way to energize the community. I've really enjoyed that
1: piece. That's exciting. Please send me the link to that. Yes, I will. Definitely. Absolutely. Great. Well, have a wonderful day. Such a pleasure. I know we'll talk again. Today's episode of Rare and Common is brought to you by Ultragenics.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Rare and Common podcast. If you enjoyed the program, you can subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Rare in common. Click, listen, feel,